welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that searches out middle ground within life, uh, particularly within the wellness world. My name is Jenny Omani. Uh, and I'm Annika Buckle. As always, just a beautiful, gentle nudge in the direction of if you enjoy listening to us, please feel free to share, give us a nice little five-star review, say something nice. Um, podcasters always say it, but it's because we really mean it. We appreciate it a lot. And very exciting. Today, we have a special guest. We do. And the special guest actually gave us the name for this podcast. Uh, it was semi-stolen with permission. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have my friend, Dr. Carly Akerst, who is a naturopathic doctor. Um, I've actually known Carly forever. Her mom taught at my high school. And we just found out that Carly and Annika are essentially neighbors and their kids went to the same preschool. So it's a small world in Vancouver. <laughs> Uh, why don't you give us a little introduction? Well, hello, everybody, and thank you so much for having me. Um, my name is Dr. Carly Akerst. I am a naturopathic doctor here in Vancouver, BC. I've been in practice for 11 years, which is a little bit shocking to actually say that. It'll be 11 years this June. Um, yeah, and I'm thrilled to be here today um, to answer some questions and kind of talk about what a naturopathic doctor is, what we do, and how we sort of, what our place is in the medical system. I love that. And I don't know how you've been practicing for 11 years, because I feel like your mom taught me five years ago <laughs> when I was in high school. <laughs> um, that's a great segue. Could you actually do a little description for us on what is a naturopathic doctor? Great question. So a naturopathic doctor is someone who has uh, been to school for an undergraduate degree, well, and we were there at the same time doing that as well, um, and then has gone through a four-year accredited naturopathic medical school. So we are sort of um, uh, experts in complementary and alternative medicine, but also very much trained as primary health care providers. So we offer a blend, I would say, of both complementary and uh, allopathic or traditional or conventional medicine um, as well. So we operate in different places in different parts of the country. But here in BC, we enjoy a really wide scope of practice that's very similar to that of a GP. And also covered by a lot of extended medical programs, too. Exactly. Yeah. Covered by extended uh, medical care in many cases. Um, and it, similarly to the way that dentistry would be covered, I would say. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, so uh, what are you as a naturopathic doctor offering that's different or complementary to kind of that like traditional medical allopathic system and what differentiates you from a medical doctor? Great question. So one of the primary differences is that we don't operate within the conventional uh, constraints of the system. So one of the main differences is that we get a whole bunch more time. So my initial visits are an hour. Follow-ups typically are half an hour, anywhere from half an hour to an hour. And that really allows us to get to know our patients. Um, one of the reasons that I chose naturopathic medicine is that I wanted relationship-based care. I wanted to know who my patients were. I wanted to know their background. 
uh, I wanted to know um, their families and sort of what brought them into my office so that I could have a better understanding of what was going on for them. So to give an example, let's say somebody came to see me uh, because they were fatigued. Well, I need to know if they're fatigued because they have low iron or if they're fatigued because they have 11 children at home and they're trying to run a small business and, you know, they're a single parent, for example. So that's a, one thing that I really enjoy is that we get the time to actually build those relationships um, within our within my own practice. We also have choice and we can what one primary difference that we can offer is choice. So let's say somebody comes in and they have a sore ankle. We might uh, make a recommendation to see another healthcare professional. So refer to physio or chiropractic or massage therapy. We might, uh, we would do a physical exam typically and see what's going on, uh, determine a diagnosis. We might offer um, an, some anti-inflammatory herbs. So turmeric, for example, would be a good thing to use in that case. Um, we might recommend some exercises or um, I don't do this in my own practice, but lots of naturopathic doctors offer uh, physical medicine treatments like prolotherapy or PRP injections that can help with healing. Um, and so we can offer a kind of all of those options at the same time. And then if we deemed that a prescription anti-inflammatory was necessary, we could prescribe that too. That's the case here in BC. And I'll talk a little bit about this um, later on as well. But that's one of the primary differences that I see is that we can offer all of those options. And then the patient has the choice to decide which of those options fits for them, their lifestyle, their budget, their philosophy. Um, uh, what It really allows the patient to have that control. I love that. Um, I'm going to go on a small tangent about primary health care <laughs> here, <laughs> small rant, if you will. And here in British Columbia, and I think this is reflective of so many places right now within the Western world, we have a primary healthcare system that's really under stress. And I mean, to the extent of being in shambles in some places, uh, and I don't actually think that's really a huge hyperbole. Um, you're seeing the strain in the hospital system because there's just this, what should be our foundational layer in healthcare, primary care is not accessible for a lot of people. We know there's a huge shortage with um, GPs, um, general practitioner doctors, family doctors. We know there's um, it, like even I had a friend whose daughter had had abdominal pain and she couldn't go to urgent care because it was booked with appointments. And it's like, what do you mean it's booked with appointment? It's it's urgent care. So not only do people not have that primary physician, then that second level is also booked up and you end up with people waiting till they have a really large issue, significant problem. And they, they then present to the emergency department. And I think where we can really should be focusing a lot of our energy in is in building up and making a much more robust primary healthcare system to prevent people from having these complications and these more severe um, chronic conditions or getting to the place where they are severe because they haven't had access. And I think where your profession fits in is just another layer within primary care. And it's a great layer for people in my opinion, that are maybe hesitant or leery of the, you know, allopathic or, you know, air quotes, traditional medical system, because they're getting access to the system still. They're seeing a provider who's trained to do primary care and does have 
a lot of tools in the tool belt. So even if they don't choose, you know, necessarily tools that um, the uh, allopathic system would deem the most beneficial uh, for that particular situation, they've seen somebody. Yes. And they've, right, they've seen somebody. So how do you sort of see yourself fitting in with the healthcare system? I know you just did a big nod and a yes. Like, can you elaborate a little bit on that for us? Well, I agree completely with what you're saying. And I want to say too, that this is uh, uh, in no way directed at the practitioners within the system. It's the system that is broken. And I spent eight years working very closely um, with a number of both primary care and specialist medical doctors. And I have the utmost respect. I think the system uh, is unequal in terms of how it provides for uh, primary care providers and, and some specialists as well. And I think it's really difficult to practice good care within the parameters and the restrictions of, uh, of the system as it exists at the moment. So oh, I really, really just wanna say that um, when I was making a decision to choose naturopathic medicine, or conventional medical school, one of the reasons I chose it is because I had a, uh, I was working in my fourth year at UBC for a medical doctor, a GP, who was like, I, she was a third generation MD or GP. And she was like, listen, primary care is in a tough spot. And that was a long time ago. I won't mention the year, but a long time ago, um, <laughs> at least so, 11 years ago, at yeah. least 11 years ago. Exactly. <laughs> Plus some. But what was really uh, eye opening to me is that watching the way that she was compensated, the extra work that she had to do, the paperwork she had to do. She said to me, listen, I know that you want that relationship based care and it's, it's hard to do um, in the environment as it exists right now. So I just want to say like big shout out to our primary care providers in this province because they are doing amazing work with uh, insufficient support, really. It's mm -hmm. the system that is, a, is the problem. So um, I think another and so to answer the question. It's been fascinating to be in medicine at this point in time, right? It's been 11 years. When I graduated, I was doing very, a very different type of medicine than what I'm doing now. And this really plays a role in terms of what I see for the future of naturopathic doctors within this province, and most especially for myself. So when I first graduated, um, uh, 11 years ago, I was doing a lot more adjunctive care. So I was doing um, my passion. One of my passions is perinatal or pregnancy uh, and postpartum care. So I was doing a lot of education. I was providing acupuncture uh, through the pregnancy. I would be doing um, uh, like supplement recommendations, dietary counseling, um, uh, mental, emotional counseling, really focusing on adjunctive care because what I, I felt at the time is that my patients were uh, getting sufficient care from the primary healthcare system. What I'm finding now, post-pandemic, post, uh, well, in 2023 and economic times and everything that we're going through at the moment is that I'm really playing that role of primary care physician for so many people um, mm -hmm. and so many of my patients. So when I ask a pregnant person, you know, have you seen a medical professional yet in your pregnancy, um, that what I'm noticing is that's delayed. So whereas previously they might've had their initial visit with a midwife or a family doctor or an OB earlier on in the pregnancy, now that's happening often after that eight week ultrasound. And mm. so 
especially if this someone if this is someone's first pregnancy, I'm doing a lot of I'm ordering blood work to confirm the pregnancy and screen for infectious disease. I am uh, providing them with information about what services are available to them. I'm talking about genetic testing because some genetic testing happens as early as 10 weeks. We actually are offering genetic testing um, at, my, at my clinic, at my practice as well. Um, and so what I'm noticing now is that I, I give the example of pregnancy, but this really um, is relevant in so many different ways. So, you know, a patient says, well, I'm fatigued and I'll say, well, have you, and they may or may not have been to see a care provider. And I'll say, well, have you had your thyroid checked and how's your iron and what's going on with B12 and ask some of what I feel are the more basic questions um, around fatigue screening. And often the answer is no, or I don't have a family doctor, or mm-hmm. I went to a walk-in and, and, was told that we don't do that or especially if it's a female patient that's fatigued. I was just gonna say I know women's health we got a long way to go people well and a lot of those other intersections too right like we know people in bigger bodies don't get the same care we know people you know who are BIPOC get different care I think a lot of those things that were already exacerbated have gotten to an even larger crisis point now. And I don't know how much you're seeing that, but I I feel like that's happening in a lot of places. It is happening in a lot of places. And I think especially when we're talking about this in the context of the lower mainland, that's such an expensive place Mm -hmm. to live. What does a single parent do when they have a sick child and they cannot miss work and they are they supposed to take that child on the bus and wait in a waiting room when they don't have a primary care provider and so what's difficult is that that also happens in my like that's relevant to my profession as well because I don't operate within the parameters of the MSP the medical services plan right so patients either have to have a job that offers extended health benefits to be able to see me or they need to have the uh, finances to be able to afford to see an ND, which is like brings up a whole other ethical question. So in my mind, one one of the ways that we can, that as NDs, we can fit into the healthcare system is that we can offer that care for patients who want relationship-based care, who need a care provider, who can oversee their whole case, who maybe doesn't have a primary care provider, but someone who's tracking, when do you do for a PAP? What do you do for a mammogram? When's the last time you had your screening blood work done or physical exam or anything like that? And so if we are seeing a portion of the population that could afford to see us or does have those extended benefits, then hopefully that means that there's more availability within the system for the patients who don't have the finances. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. And I think, you know, I want to touch on something you said before that you kind of brought up again is this idea of like relationship based care. I know when I first um, had my daughter, when I went to see my midwife, it like blew my mind that I went into my appointment and she was like, so we've got an hour. Like, how are you feeling? What do you want to talk about? I'm like, what? What? I I don't have 15 minutes to only talk about one thing and only get one prescription. And I can't talk about anything else. What do you mean? How am I feeling? I don't understand. Yeah, no, it's so true. I had a midwife and an OB for my last um, baby, which uh, is not standard. Like if you have a midwife and you need an OB in British Columbia, then you can have both, but you can't just like decide to have both. Um, And I was shocked because I'd had a midwife 
for all of mine. And then I was referred to the most amazing OB. She's wonderful. She used to be my family doctor and then specialized. Like I love her. I was shocked at how little time I had. Now the time I had with her, she was amazing and wonderful. It was like 15 minutes. And I, I actually left thinking, I wonder what the stats for postpartum depression are between people who've had OB care versus midwifery because of the time, that time, like any time when you, yeah. So I, I, we don't need to have a whole talk about midwives, well, but it's such a good example for people in terms of And I can see why you would choose a path that would allow you to have that relationship because totally. I see how valuable it is. It's interesting. Some just as a, an aside to that, but I've noticed that some midwif midwifery practices that we work with are now offering postpartum care. Mm. So they do postpartum only care. So if somebody had oh, wow. an OB for oh, or a family doctor for their uh, pregnancy and then wanted that follow up care, some practices are offering postpartum only care, which I think is so rad. Like just yeah. so. Great. Do you know what I love about that? Is it's taking. Um, it's really identifying a need and mm -hmm. speaking directly to that need for a very vulnerable group. Because re regardless of income and access and resources, being mm -hmm. postpartum is a really vulnerable state to be in. Well, um, and so I think great. this kind of comes back also to this idea of like, when you can have that preemptive care that gets mm -hmm. in front of larger probably more expensive if we want to look at it in our, you know, capitalist lens problems down the road, you know, for both mom and baby and family units, you know, mm -hmm. I think that is significant. Well, mm -hmm. and this, there's such a good example within this exact context. So I usually run screening blood work in my patients when they're three to six months postpartum. MSP, it's not standard of care. So MSP doesn't recommend or it will cover that if another care provider chose to, to do that, but it's not standard of care to run screening blood work. So what often patients will say, I'll say to them, if they haven't seen me for pregnancy or they're seeing me postpartum, um, you know, have you had your iron checked? And they'll say, no, well, I had low iron in pregnancy, but then I had the baby. As if we just <laughs> miraculously re renew our I got a new body because exactly. I have a baby. Well, and like, there's no consider, like we don't have any consideration there for someone, like it may be checked in someone that had a postpartum hemorrhage, but we don't have discussions around that, right? And totally fair. The conventional system wants to keep you alive. They do a really good job of that, right? Yeah. But it's these subtle differences that someone might be, you know, feeling postpartum, like they are losing like a lot of hair. We all lose hair postpartum, but volumes, right? That they're feeling tired. Well, postpartum is a time that we would be feeling tired, but how can we be sure, you know, sleep deprivation and, and the rest, but how can we be sure that that fatigue is not because you don't have sufficient iron stores? Yeah. Right. And it's like, mm -hmm. oh, I think a lot of what happens, especially in a stressed out medical system is we are sort of told, oh, you're a tired mom. Like this is what it's meant to be. Right. Yeah. If we're, mm -hmm. if we're running some simple screening blood work, iron, thyroid, vitamin B12, a blood, a, a hematology panel. So complete blood count and differential. And then I also like to check vitamin D at that time too. So these are things that patients have to pay for. Like if I'm recommending that the patient has to pay for that out of pocket, but I would argue that it is so valuable, especially if you're choosing to chest feed or breastfeed, like especially then it's really valuable to know that you have sufficient levels of iron, vitamin D, especially given what we know about postpartum depression and postpartum anxiety. 
I think yeah. we need to have you back and do a whole episode on women's <laughs> health and things that women get ignored. So many questions. Because it's so um, true. A hundred percent. Kind of like piggybacking on that a little bit. How do you as a naturopathic doctor work within the medical system to ensure your care remains evidence-based? Because mm-hmm. I think kind of to exactly what you're talking about, those simple screenings seem super valuable. There is evidence there. You know, how does that, what does that navigation kind of look like? Yeah, really good question. And it's always a fine line, right? Between following the evidence and then following just what makes good clinical sense, right? Right. So it is not, um, and following following the standard of care. So it's tricky because standards of care are not standard everywhere, right? So (laughs) of course not. Why would they be? (laughs) So that's one way that I always try to um, uh, remain up to date is that, you know, is this a standard here or is this a standard elsewhere and it's something that we aren't doing here so for for the example of iron and postpartum that is not standard of care to check iron postpartum um i would say that i don't i don't even know what the evidence is in terms of low iron rates in postpartum i can say clinically it's something that i see very very frequently um but to me it makes common it's common sense right mm-hmm. it's common sense to check that so in that case that's kind of what i follow Um, We as a clinic subscribe to -to UpToDate, which is a a database um, where it is, as it says, up to date with the most clinical evidence in terms of conditions and what what we should be considering. We also use that in the hospitals. So that's also that that's like a cross. So for people that aren't familiar with UpToDate, that's like a that's a standard. um, Like if I am working in the ICU and we have some sort of something that I'm not familiar with, like that is totally uh, standard practice to use up to date within the allopathic system as well. And that, that's part of the reason why I love it is it's so well-respected. It, it's, it essentially summarizes all the data that we have at the moment or the best available data that we have at the moment um, around a particular concern or a particular diagnosis. So that's really where we reference. Um, we, our primary reference is up to date. And then within my own clinic, um, we also have uh, the way that I sort of built out, I I started a new clinic a year ago. And the way that I kind of built it out was I was really picky about who I chose to join. Um, So again, chose practitioners that I felt were like-minded in terms of appreciation and respect for evidence. Um, And so we are constantly sharing information around um, uh, PubMed art- articles that come out and, uh, you know, studies that change the way that we're doing things. And so I would say that it's a blend, right? Like we want that evidence-based information, but for example, to give the example, oh, this is going to like open a whole can of worms, but, but we love um, cans of worms. <laughs> and I know Annika right now is just dying to see up to date.com. It's a, per- you have to have a subscription. <laughs> yeah. I know. I I already know that I can't, but I wish I could. (laughs) Open the can, Carly. So to give an example of, um, I don't know if you've heard of the HCG diet. No, but the fact that name alone just tells me that I don't like it. I have a bias already. (laughs) it's It's a diet that causes kind of aggressive weight loss. And in my clinical experience, um, it's not my favorite is what I will say. Um, lots of people love it, but it's not my favorite. And so that's an example of something that like we don't offer at my clinic because I don't feel that it's really in line with a lot of things. Yeah. With how you want to practice. And because you are in that relationship base, you want to have people come to you that, you know, you, you want 
to be a good match for them too. Right. Like it goes both ways. Well, and this is, this brings up a really interesting point and a really important point. I am not the naturopathic doctor for everyone. I'm not. You will have some people uh, that I've had so many times in the last 11 years that people want, I have patients that come in and want me to tell them that not vaccinating is a good choice. And I won't do that. No, won't do that. Like I'm always, the patient is always at the forefront of my care. I will always support them with whatever choice they make, but I, I won't tell them that it's a good evidence-based decision to not Mm -hmm. immunize. No. And I think that's also where there's such a good role we talked about within um, naturopathic doctors within the healthcare system is that when you do have that group of people that has trust concerns, um, you know, when they come and see somebody like you, they are, can at least be respected for their choices, but also have, uh, develop a trusting relationship. So I can imagine that with sort of time, um, you know, maybe things that, that misinformation and disinformation that they've really believed is true with a good relationship, uh, with their provider can maybe help them, you know, come to terms with, uh, accurate evidence-based information, especially when it comes to stuff like, like vaccines for sure. Yeah, I would say that's exactly it. Right. And I think that we can, um, there are ways that we can work together to make an outcome, have an outcome that feels good to everybody. Mm-hmm. And this is an example, like I know one of the questions we were kind of chatting about is like, when do I, what, how, what do I, when do I make a decision to refer? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we can't refer directly to specialists in BC because the way uh, the system is set up. So I can't say, oh, I want you to see a pediatrician or dermatologist or whatever else. Um, I typically would have to have a discussion with the patient about seeking a referral from a referring care provider. So that would be mm-hmm. a GP or um, uh, other medical doctor or a nurse practitioner. But to give the example of immunizations, like I work pretty closely with a pediatrician um, who I worked in that larger integrative clinic with for eight years, who knows kind of my approach, knows um, my background and my appreciation for evidence. And so we enjoy a relationship where, um, you know, if someone has questions, um, I can refer to them and say, listen, this is what I think is, uh, or make a recommendation that they see that pediatrician to have their questions answered um, in a very like neutral environment, I will say. Um, so yeah, I think it's it's an it's an interesting one, right? And it's unfortunate that we can't refer directly to other mm-hmm. specialists, but at the same time, given the state of specialist care at the moment and the wait lists and everything else, like sometimes we're part of what we're doing is advocacy for our patients. So doing an assessment, doing a physical exam, maybe doing some blood work and saying, you know what, I really think this needs a second opinion, or I think this needs a specialist opinion. So if we're doing that primary intervention, then at least they know, okay, well, this isn't normal. And I should seek, I should seek care for that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you segued like an absolute boss, because we were going to ask you exactly when do you refer out? And that's, that's really interesting to know. Um, and that's also uh, like a billing thing they have that in terms of referrals, yeah. referrals have to be done within a six month period. And there's this whole exactly. system. Referrals are actually a giant pain in the ass. Um, but I think what's really, which is crazy, a, but anyways, that's a, separate. I know, but from <laughs> a, such trust, a waste of time in so it's many, such contexts. a waste of time, yeah. but I think from a trust perspective within the healthcare system, if, somebody's family, um, nurse practitioner or family physician, 
um, is approached by a patient who said, Hey, my naturopathic doctor really thinks I benefit from a referral to, you know, X specialist. I think that those conversations are so valuable for, because I, there is, you know, to a certain extent within the provider field concern about people seeing alternative or complementary providers. Right. So I think that that really helps with that trust relationship for someone to say like, Hey, I've been seeing a naturopathic doctor. She really thinks I need to see a dermatologist. Um, but she can't refer, you know, could you do that for me? And I think that really shows how we can work hand in hand in all these different areas. It doesn't have to be, but it can be, and right. Like, Mm -hmm. Totally. And our, so one of the big pieces of feedback that we've received from doctors of BC is that it's difficult when the patient is going to advocate for that on their own, which I can totally see, right? Like there is the referral system within the conventional system for a reason. You get a letter, you get, we're not relying on the patient to relay that information. So our association is working on templates that we can use to basically send that information Mm. to the, to the other primary care provider to make that decision. One of the other things that I like to do is to run some screening blood work. So let's say somebody comes in with the complaint of joint pain. And let's say I run like an inflammatory marker, C-reactive protein, maybe I run ESR, maybe I I do a couple of autoimmune um, markers. But I want the other care provider to know that I'm not just pawning this off on them, that we've Mm -hmm. done kind of what Mm -hmm. we can do within my limitations, but let's say it comes back and it's flagged for autoimmunity or it's positive for Sjogren's or something like that, right? Like as naturopathic doctors, I know that like we need to refer for that really. And I would say that that's important that they have, often what I'll say to my patients is listen, the conventional system is very good at diagnostics. Let's, we need to go as far as we possibly can on the diagnostics and make sure that we're covering all our bases so that we know that you've got, you've had a thorough workup, you have a rheumatologist involved um, and, and that we're kind of aware of what's going on there. And then we can look at the other stuff, right? Like then we can look at what are the other options um, in terms of treatment. So let's say somebody chooses that they, they're offered from their uh, specialist that they want to do steroids. And it's not a like absolute, you must do. It's like, well, you could try it or you could try not, try not. I'll often say to people, okay, let's give it three months or six months or whatever, a set amount of time. Let's try this intervention. Uh, that's maybe more naturopathic. So I brought up the case of turmeric before, but you know, looking at curcumin or PEA or other things that are specific to kind of global joint pain. Um, and if this is somebody that's been identified as really needing the steroids, then they absolutely need the steroids. And I will tell them that, but if this is someone that's like, okay, well, we're going to take a wait and see approach, or, um, you know, we, there's nothing really we can do at this time. There's often other things that we can do that are low on the intervention scale, but could make a big impact. And that's again, kind of going back to that choice, right? I mean, ultimately I think healthcare autonomy is really important And so the patient gets, ultimately kind of gets to choose, right? Yeah. I think there's so much, so little choice within, um, the system that we have. So any place that you can find choice, it's just so beneficial, even from just like a perception standpoint (laughs) as a patient. And I also think that if you're going to wait six months to a year to see the rheumatologist, you may as well have some things to try in the meantime. Because exactly. you're waiting, you, you've got the referral in. You're it's waiting, waiting anyway. Game. You're yeah. waiting anyways. You may as yeah. well try a few things and at least, you know, 
you're not hurting anything along the way. Well, especially if we're looking at the low intervention pieces, right? Like if we're talking about something like fish oil or turmeric, or like I mentioned PEA before. And I think what's happening, it's a really interesting time within the naturopathic world because many, like as healthcare tech is booming, many companies are recognizing that a lot of the ways in which we test for, for certain things are a bit outdated. Um, so to give the example with rheumatology, there's a new test on the market that will look for a particular protein that's only present in patients who have um, rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. It's a protein in the joint, and it only is present in the blood when there's damage from rheumatoid arthritis specifically. This is a test that's being run by specialists in the US, but it's not being run yet by anybody in Canada. So we've been approached to bring in this testing. Um, there is a point of care option. So patients could literally have their finger pricked in office and know whether or not they uh, had rheumatoid arthritis, but it can also be used for progression. So let's say this is a patient who says, you know what, I have rheumatoid arthritis, I want to do the methotrexate or whatever treatment it's offered conventionally, but I want a way to kind of monitor how the treatment is uh, managed. Is how, this how working? Managing that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, is this working? working? Like, exactly. And so something like this that's now available, I think it's in the neighborhood of, of between two and $300 for the patient to do. But that's a way that we can help to support the conventional system by sort of offering additional testing or additional supports there. So yeah, I think it's an exciting time because I think we'll start to see more and more of that type of thing become available. Well, and that's kind of the cool thing about like technologically where we are right now, right? Is mm -hmm. we start to recognize that there are there are going to be better ways to do things. <laughs> well, and with the shift off of all hands on deck for COVID to now it's, I really, I'm, I mean, this is probably just such wishful thinking. I'm really hoping that primary <laughs> care is going to be our focus because that is the focus was on acute care because it needed to be, mm -hmm. but now acute care needs the focus to be on primary care to make it easier for acute care. <laughs> but I think upstream. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Right. Um, what's your favorite thing you get to bring to care with your patients? Compassion. Oh, I love that. Oh, <laughs> oh Annika's I get, a crier. I am a crier. <laughs> I, get to, I get to be compassionate. Like I get to be, and like compassion and empathy, right? And I think there isn't enough of that in medicine. Mm -hmm. mm. Um. And I would say presence too. Like when you have half an hour, an hour to sit with someone in terms of what's really going on, you know, and often you can see it. Um, I forget this. I remember this from school, but something like it takes like a full 11 minutes for someone to like really, I'm probably butchering that stat, but like for someone to like really relax and feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And so often like when I'm most of the time, the relationship that I enjoy with my patients now, I would say they, they feel, most feel comfortable to tell me what's going on in their lives or what else might be happening. But occasionally I'll sit with a new patient and it'll, we'll have gone through, you know, so many different questions, diet, digestion, hormones, sleep, the whole bit. Um, and we'll get to the last 10 minutes and then it'll kind of come out, right? Like what's actually been going on. And so like kind of behind the scenes. And so it's a privilege to be able to sit with people and hear those 
stories and hear what that what is actually happening. But in many circumstances, that information is the most important. Mm. It's like I can tell you that probiotics are great and till the cows come home, but probiotics won't do anything if you're, you know, have uh, something that needs to be really fleshed out, right? Like whether it's an emotional or concern or whether it's a, a physical concern, right? Like if there, we need to kind of that time and that compassion and that presence to be able to build the trust so that people feel comfortable to share that information, right? And I think that the time, I think because you do get that longer window, it just also probably means your bandwidth and your brain when you come into the office and you see that you're going to see what five, six patients, maybe if you're doing initial visits that day versus if you were coming into a 15 minute appointment clinic where it's just like an assembly line, like you your the space that you as a provider are sitting in, I can only imagine just feels more like you're more available to your patients because you're not thinking of this, like you're not seeing 25, 30 people, uh, that day that you won't even get to bill for all of them. Cause maybe you'll slide somebody in and you've maxed out your, your cap for the day, the day billing wise. So you don't have to think of, you don't have the same constraints sort of bandwidth wise. No. Yeah, not the same pressures by any stretch, right? And so it still can be um, very much a long, a long day, but in a different way, right? Like mm-hmm. um, over the years, I've had to learn in terms of boundaries and leaving work at work and all of that kind of stuff because it can be heavy when someone tells you something for the first time, right? Mm-hmm. That they've never said that before. Um, but like I said, it's a privilege, especially in women's health. It's a privilege because we don't have enough. I don't think of that, that compassionate, uh, like the, the blend of the compassionate care with the evidence base, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think there's a middle ground mm. there. There sure Funny is. That. Yeah. <laughs> we agree. <laughs> um, so we kind of covered, sounds like what your real love with working with your patients is when you talked about you know, just that last question there, is there anything, um, you, if, so the question is, if you could do anything to improve people's health and wellness, what would it be? You get one thing, <laughs> only one. So okay. Well, I'm going to cheat a tiny bit because you were going to, that's why I said only one. It's uh-huh. okay. It's okay. Go yeah, for it. I'm going to cheat a tiny <laughs> bit. So I would say like off the bat, test your vitamin D. You need to know oh, what interesting. it is. Especially, I thought you were going to say water. I was like, okay, oh, fine. No. Water for everybody. Okay. Yeah, whatever. No, test your vitamin D. Water, irrelevant. Especially in vitamin D, lab. important. <laughs> yeah. If people are listening to us from like other, like California, for example, that's a different story. But here in the lower mainland, in BC, in Canada in general, test your vitamin D. People will say, oh, I don't need to test. I take vitamin D. I take a thousand to 2000 units every day. I can't even tell you how many people I've had over the years who don't are are deficient in vitamin D, even if they're taking it. Hmm. So test your vitamin D. I would say it has such overarching, it plays a role in hormones, digestion, stress, sleep, immunity, bone health, like so many different things. But really what I would say, if I could say one thing to help people improve their health overall, it would be to really understand how cortisol works. Mm. Mm. I so, so it's another follow-up episode. <laughs> so 
So cortisol is our chronic stress hormone, and you can have serious conditions or more serious conditions where your cortisol is either way too high or way too low, and that can cause a number of different problems, diagnosable health conditions. But cortisol is our response to the brain's interpretation of stress. And certainly in the last four years, but also I would say just in life in general in 2023, our brains are interpreting that we're under a very high level of stress for the most part, not for everybody, but for the most part. And cortisol has a curve to it. It typically peaks at around eight-ish in the morning and then gradually declines throughout the day. So you wake up feeling kind of bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. And then by the end of the day, you're sort of ready to go to sleep. Shift work can make that more difficult. But having high demand for cortisol for long periods of time, so meaning that you're stuck in that fight or flight for long periods of time is really detrimental to our health. And it will play a role in your hormonal health, in your cardiovascular health, in your um, uh, mental health. And so I would say that that's really where I would say that you could make a, a big lasting difference is if you understood kind of what, where your baseline is and how that might be impacting your sleep, your weight, your digestion, right? I think many of us are living caught in that fight or flight state without even really realizing it. Because we're used to it. Exactly. We adapt. Yeah. 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 So biochemically, it's basically, you're basically saying biochemically stress is genuinely not a good thing long-term. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, it's so interesting to think about too, right? Cause I always kind of joke. It's like, well, my body doesn't know that this email I have to reply to isn't a tiger at the door, but like, <laughs> it's just an email. I just have to reply to it. But I, I mean, to your point, when, when that's literally how our body is reacting all the time, it's. Well, it, and our bodies don't know nothing. the difference between the, 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 the tiger and the, the email process is the same. Our bodies don't know the difference between the tiger mm -hmm. and the email. And what's tough is that I think it's like so much in the wellness space, we hear like, oh, lower your stress, stress is bad. You know, um, just meditate and all your problems will go away, right? Like, and I think it, it's really selling a, a poor bill of goods because it's, it's not just what's happening in the brain. It's what's happening on that physiological level, right? So mm -hmm. we call it, HPA axis dysfunction, right? The hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, they all communicate. So your brain and your adrenal glands, your adrenal glands are what's responsible for producing cortisol or regulating cortisol. And what's difficult is that like we, so we can test, we can do a saliva or a urine test to see what your cortisol pattern is actually doing throughout the day. I don't do that often in my practice, but sometimes patients are interested and wanna know. Um, and it can be really surprising to see that your demand for cortisol is high all the time, or it's mm -hmm. low in the morning when it's supposed to be high and high at the end of the day. And what's hard is that we live in a world that always demands more, right? And so our, our bodies really aren't meant to be operating that way. We should have periods of time when we have rest and digest, right? Mm -hmm. Our parasympathetic nervous system is more active. And then periods of time where we have that fight or flight, where our sympathetic nervous system is more active but we can't be in one or the other all the time, right? And so that's what I would say. I would say in over the last decade-ish of practice, that's where I think we have the least amount of understanding and potentially the most amount of impact. 
So what mm. I'm hearing is it was capitalism all along. <laughs> With a with a, a splash of patriarchy, <laughs> just a dusting. Oh, I love <laughs> it. Um, so, okay, what does middle ground look like to you? I think that best care for patients is a healthcare team. Mm. I really do. Someone that is looking out for prevention. Someone that's thinking, I have a. 40 year old female patient in front of me. Am I thinking about perimenopause? Am I thinking about colon cancer screening? Am I thinking about mammogram screening? Am I thinking about pap screening? When's the last time they had screening blood work? What's going on there? Right. Um, but also has the care that when, if, if they get into a car accident, they can go to the hospital and be seen within a reasonable amount of time and receive their trauma care. And they have follow-up with their a family doctor who uh, knows them, knows their history, and is able to provide that, um, and might also do something like, I mean, we're we're trained in this, but it's not my area of special specialization. But who does like an annual mole screen or a mm -hmm. like skin cancer check? Um, and so, really, I think that middle ground to me, like I said, it's that it's that care team where there's multiple people. Uh, working towards the same goal with the patient ultimately at the center with the autonomy to decide what they, what care they choose or what direction they want to go, but that we're all working together because we all have our areas of strength. We all have our weaknesses. And I think that when we have a team surrounding the patient, potentially also including you know, a counselor and maybe a physiotherapist. And um, uh, I think that that's really where the best care occurs. Mm, I love that. And it's so true. It's so true. So when you look at your own practice, how do you seek out middle ground in what you do? Yeah, I really, I enjoy working with other healthcare providers. So um, I'm trained as a primary healthcare provider. I have my areas of interest, but I am not a specialist by any means. I have things that I'm really good at treating, but I also recognize my limitations that there are lots of things that I am not really good at treating and that I haven't done for a long time, right? So to me, I think referrals are really important. And this is again, where things can get tricky when someone doesn't have a primary or a family doctor or access within the medical system for those referrals, right? But for me, I think that middle ground really is continuing to build and enjoy the relationships that I already have with other healthcare providers, um, both uh, um, paramedical providers, so physiotherapists, chiropractors. Um, I have an awesome dentist that I love working with. I have a whole slew of counselors that I enjoy working with. So that we can and and so that we can enjoy that knowledge base, right? As opposed to working in silos. This is one of the things that I tried to build at my clinic is that every one of us, there are six doctors, six NDs at our clinic now. Every one of us can do general care. So if you suspect you have an ear infection and you need to get that checked, any one of us can see you six days a week um, and provide that same level of care, right? Physical exam maybe some adjunctive care. So acupuncture or um, not for an ear infection, but herbal medicine or whatever. Um, 
and then also probably give you a script for antibiotics if that's warranted and say like wait to fill kind of thing. But we also all offer our own areas of special interest. So I do a lot of women's health, pregnancy and pediatrics and chronic UTIs. Uh, we have another doctor, her primary focus is adjunctive oncology care. So she's done significant additional training in um, care for cancer patients. We have another doctor that uh, her back, her primary interest is in digestion, um, someone else with complex chronic disease focus. So we kind of offer this baseline general care, but then each of us has these areas that we, we focus in and we inter-refer within the office. I love that. I love that you can just do that within your calling group because it just makes it a better patient experience and it makes it easier. It's nice for you to know that you've got somebody that you know well so close by that you can refer to. That's fantastic. I did. I had a question of why. So my clinic, I made it to be just NDs. And I had a question of like, why would you choose to make one, you know, an integrative clinic with one type of healthcare provider? I chose that for a number of different reasons, but one of one of which was that I wanted to know that I had a team of colleagues with me where we could create this environment where we shared information, shared clinical cases, got support, but also could inter-refer. So if I have someone that comes in and I'm suspicious of, let's say, chronic fatigue syndrome, I know that I who exactly I can refer them to where they're going to see someone who this is their special area of focus. It's hmm. awesome. That's amazing. Um, this has been so fun. I have learned so much. I feel like I have like a bajillion questions brewing in my head, but in the interest of time, where can our listeners find you online? How can people track you down? Yeah. So, um, my clinic is called Clementine Natural Health. That's, um, yeah, that's our clinic. We're at 16th and Granville. So that's not online, but you can find us there in person in Vancouver. Um, our website is clementinenaturalhealth.com. Clementine, like the fruit. Um, we're on Instagram at, at Clementine Natural Health. Um, we're also on Facebook as Clementine Natural Health as well. Um, I myself am also on Instagram separately under Dr. Carly Akerst. Um, and I, my, I have my own website, dracurst.com. Um, but yeah, that's generally where you can find us. Amazing. And we will put those links in the show notes as well for people for easy access. And we're definitely going to have you back because I feel like Thank we you. all have so many topics that I think would be so helpful to tease through with you. Thank you. Well, thanks for having me. This was really fun and enlightening and it's exciting to get to talk about this stuff. Sure is. Thanks so much for listening to We really appreciate your support. And if you could do us a big favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.